want little to do with Christ because they've witnessed hypocrisy among many Christians. I know that one of the reasons that as a child I went to church but ended up slipping into atheism in my teen years as I became a young man was because I saw people that said that they were Christians and they went to church, but they acted one way in church and they acted however they wanted to outside of it. And so I came to a conclusion then that God is a nice idea, but he must not be real. And I want you to know that if you find the idea of hypocrisy among God's people to be grieving, that God finds it grieving as well. And if you were to listen to what the Lord Jesus said, the people in his teaching stories that always were the villains were the, hypocr the hypocrites, the religious leaders that said one thing and did another, that were close to God with their lips, but they were far from him in their heart and with some of their actions behind closed doors. God calls us to a supernatural way of life, and no human can live the way that Jesus calls us to in their own strength. We have to rely on God's Spirit, the power of God's Spirit. That's why we, we talk about walking in the Spirit, meaning allowing God to empower you to live the way that we're supposed to. And the power is there for us, and we, when we employ it, when we avail ourselves of it, we can live that higher life. But oftentimes we don't do that. And we find ourselves falling short of what we ought to be. But we don't want to look bad. We don't want to look bad. And maybe even we rationalize with ourselves, we don't want God to look bad. So we pretend. We pretend that, we better, that we're better than we are, that we have no problems, that everything is great, that you know, we're, we're happy at home when things are a war zone at home, that everything's great at work and there's all sorts of things at work that ought not be there. Everything's great in a, a marriage or in church, but they're not everything that they're supposed to be. And so is that really what Christ wants from us is to just put on a face and end up as hypocrites? But on the other side, does Jesus just want us to go around telling everybody every bad thing that we've ever done? Is there any place in the middle? Well, in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, he talks about obedience and hypocrisy and true righteousness. And so this is in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 17. The Lord gave these words. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, in this hour, we once again ask you to bless your word, to speak to us through it. I pray that you'd help us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Crowds had gathered around the Lord Jesus. He was out uh, in a mount somewhere in Galilee. We're not sure where it was, but we know that there were many, many people that were hearing his sermon. And this was an early sermon in his ministry, the longest recorded in scripture that we have from the Lord Jesus. And we talked a little bit about what the point of it was last week, and we, we come to the heart of it here, where he says in verse number 17, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. The law and the prophets are what they would have referred to, or the terms that they would have used to refer to the Old Testament during this time. 
They think of the law, the law of Moses, the first five books, and then you have the prophets. And sometimes the Psalms are thrown in there, but these are the Old Testament scriptures. And some people were worried because Jesus came on the scene, not from any leader that most people recognize, not from any religious school that most people recognize. And he came on and he developed such a strong following so quickly. And he had such power performing miracles that couldn't be denied that people were, were scared. You had some people that were worried that he was going to destroy the law that he was preparing some rival system to what everyone had known up until now. You see, God has always had a people. And in the Old Testament, God chose Abraham, and out of that family made a large nation over hundreds of years. And that nation, God's nation, the children of Israel, they were given a law to show how they ought to uh, obey God and how they ought to conduct themselves and how they ought to worship him. This was, this was something that was given and something that everyone understood, and it was central to God's people, they were people of the book. They were people of the law. God said something, and they followed after it. This is important because a lot of the pagan people, the unbelieving people around the Jewish people, they just worshipped whatever God seemed best at the time. They didn't have scriptures like the Jewish people had scriptures, not to that extent, and they weren't so dead set on this one God. They would sometimes worship this God when they needed something from there and this God when they needed something from there. And of course, I'm using God in the term little g as opposed to big g. And so some people feared that Jesus was teaching a rival system and the traditionalists were scared about that. Some hoped that Jesus was teaching a rival system. Because they were radicals and they wanted something new and different and they looked on what had been with some disgust, thinking we need something more than what we've had before. And some thought Jesus would just straight out ruin everything. And those were the Pharisees, a group, a very strict group, very strict group that followed the Old Testament law to the letter as much as they could when people were watching them. But Jesus tells everybody, don't think that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am come not to destroy. He's not going to pull it apart. He's not going to invalidate it. He's not going to do away with it. He's come to fulfill it, to bring it to its full significance. You see, this Messiah, Jesus Christ, is the promised Messiah that was we were told about all the way back in the beginning of the Bible. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, right in the beginning, God promised a deliverer who would one day deliver his people that would deal with the problem of sin and the slavery to sin that they were underneath. God promised us all the way back, and Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this. So he's not come to do something different. He's come to make it everything that it needs to be. He is fulfilling everything that has been brought before him. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, he fulfills everything that has ever been required of man. And no man had ever done everything that was asked of him other than the Lord Jesus himself. Look in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus Christ gives a powerful testimony. In John chapter 8 and verse number 29, And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Jesus Christ always did things that pleased the Father. Wouldn't you like to be able to have that testimony? But I don't think there's anybody that realistically in this room could raise their hand and say, I always do everything that pleases God the Father. But not only does Jesus always do the things that please him, but in Hebrews chapter 4, in verse number 15, it says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, 
but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. This passage is reminding us that Jesus knew what it was like to live on this earth. He knew what it was like to be disappointed. He knew what it was like to be betrayed. He knew what it was like to be rejected. He knew what it was like to gather around and experience the joys of friendship and the closeness of worship. He knew all of these things, and he knows what it's like to be tempted to be prompted to sin, but Jesus never sinned. And so not only does he do all of the things that please the Father, he's never done anything that displeased the Father. He fully fulfilled everything that was asked of mankind. That is what made him a candidate. That is what made him able to step into our place to die for our sins because he never had any sins of his own to pay for. You see, you and I, we have all at some point sinned against God. God said, do this good thing, and we didn't do it. God says, don't do this bad thing, and we did it anyway. But Jesus, he never had any of that. He never did any of that. And so when he went to the cross, he was able to be that perfect sacrifice for our sins. Not only did he fulfill everything of what was asked of man, he fulfilled everything that was asked of the Messiah. In John chapter 5, there's a beautiful verse here is jesus explains to those that think they know what the bible says but are somewhat confused about who jesus is in john chapter 5 and verse number 39 he says search the scriptures for in them ye think ye have eternal life and they are they which testify of me he's saying God had promised to give them eternal life, to send his son, to give them deliverance. And you think you know how that's coming. But when you look in the Old Testament to see all the time that God is going to bring you that Messiah, that deliverer, all of those things, they testify, they witness, they point to Jesus. Jesus says that they point to him. And so he not only fulfilled all the requirements of what was asked of man, but also of the Messiah. And it says in this passage that they think that they have eternal life, and you can have eternal life, and that is only found in Jesus Christ himself. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he died for our sins, why he was buried, and why he rose again from the grave, proving that he had power over death, hell, and the grave, and it could not keep him down. And, and he begins this next part in verse number 18 in our passage of Matthew chapter 5. He begins it by saying, For verily I say unto you, this is a strong statement. One of the things that people would say over and over about Jesus' preaching is that he would preach with authority. He would preach with authority. When the scribes were teaching, they would get out the, the role of the Old Testament, of uh, perhaps a book, maybe Isaiah or something from the Torah, and they would read from it, and all of their authority came from the Scripture that had been given before. When the Pharisees spoke, they spoke from tradition that had been set down and what certain rabbis had said from before. But when Jesus came, Jesus spoke as though he could make the rules, as though he could say what was right and wrong and true and false and what ought to be done and ought not to be done. And he didn't need to appeal to any scripture. He didn't need to appeal to the word of God for Jesus Christ himself was the word of God. He had all authority in himself. And so when he says, for I verily say unto you, truly, I'm speaking to you. He says, I'm going to give you something that you need to hear because you have been told things that are not true, things that are not true about Jesus. Lots of rumors were flying around about how he was just a nobody. He was some upstart. No one ought to listen to him. He's some wild preacher. There was all sorts of stories that were being passed around, but he wanted them to know what he thought about the word of God. 
and how important it was to him. He says, for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. He says, I'm not come to destroy the law. I'm come to fulfill the law. Not only that, I'm going to fulfill all of the law. And all of the law, all of the word of God is important. Not one jot or one tittle is going to be removed. Think of a jot as a small letter. A small letter. What do you think the smallest letter in the English language is? I? Maybe I? And then I want you to think about the dot on the I. That's a tittle. That's just a stroke. That's just one little part of it. So he says, not only am I not here to destroy the law, I'm here to fulfill the law, but down to the very bits and pieces of it. Down to the very bits and pieces of it. You say, why is it so important? Well, if you change the part of a letter, it can change the letter. And if you change the letter, the letter can change the word, and then the word can change the whole meaning of what God was saying. There are some letters that are easy to mistake with one another in English, right? If you don't make a letter just right, your R can end up looking like a K. If you're not careful you, and you, you have too much of a tail on your U, you wonder, is that a W? And so he was saying, down to the very smallest detail, the word of God needs to be upheld, and Jesus Christ himself was going to uphold this. I want you to know that God is particular about his word. Notice in the Old Testament how many times it talks about the words of the Lord or the word of the Lord or his statutes or his commandments. It doesn't say a whole lot about his thoughts. It doesn't say a whole lot about motivation. He places an emphasis on his word. Here, here's a good, here's a good uh, scrabble uh, theological word you can write down. The locus of revelation. The locus, the focal point, where it comes from is from the words of God. There are some people that when they, they think about God's word, they take liberty with how much they can move and translate it and shift it and talk about his thoughts rather than his word. But God places an emphasis on his word and not just that, on the particular details of his word. And so if God emphasizes that, what ought we to emphasize? We ought to emphasize the same thing he does. If he says his word is important down to the smallest details of it, you and I ought to emphasize his word down to the most important details on it. That is one of the reasons why I am a Baptist. I wasn't born into a, a Christian home per se. It was a moral home. It was a good home, but it wasn't strong about the things of God. And I was raised in a different type of church the times that I did go. But I ended up becoming a Christian because of the Bible. I was so thoroughly convinced that what it said was true, even though I was a skeptic when I first came to it, that it led me to put my faith and trust in Christ. And then, as I started to realize how important the Word of God is, I decided the only kind of people, the only kind of church that I want to be a part of are people who do things God's way according to His Word. And that's what ended up leading me to become and to stay a Baptist. Not because Baptists are the only people that are going to heaven, but because of the emphasis that they place on God's word as how we know what's true and false, what's right and wrong, and what ought to be done and ought not to be done. You might think, well, what else would anybody ever use other than the Bible to determine those things? Depending on whether or not this is the only kind of church you've ever been in, you may realize that there are councils where they make decisions on what ought to be done and ought not to be done what is true and false and what's and they would get together and they would make a decision and then everybody would have to follow it 
There were different times throughout history when the church, capital C, would get together and make these decisions, or somebody who held large authority in the church would make a decision, and everybody just had to deal with it. The problem is that another pope or another patriarch would come along, and they'd make a different decision, and people would have to change, and a different council would be held, and things would have to change. And so what you end up is, if you want to know what God has to say, we have to look back at what his word says. It is a fixed point, and Jesus was saying how important it is to keep that fixed point. Verse number 19. Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of the least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Here, Jesus is saying how there's really no room in the kingdom of heaven for people that only want to go part way, for people that don't want to follow all of what God has to say. You might think that there's small details, the least commandment, meaning the least important, not necessarily the shortest in the number of words, but the least commandment. And by the way, I think this is what the Pharisees oftentimes would do to excuse when they weren't doing what they were supposed to. Is they're like, oh, well, that's a really small one. We don't have to worry about that. You ever tried to talk about the size of something that you did that was wrong to make it less wrong? I only stole something little. I only told a little lie. I only, I only marked a little bit over on my timesheet. I only cussed a little bit. I only raised my voice a little bit. I only got angry a little bit. That, that doesn't excuse it, which is scary to me that it doesn't excuse it because that means I'm in trouble. That means I'm in trouble. Jesus says that somebody that will take the, the, what seems to be the least important commandment and not do it, and also teach other people not to do it, that you don't have to worry about that. It's not a big deal. They're not doing justice to the Word of God because all of it is important. All of it is authoritative. We don't get to decide what's true and what's not true. We either have to go with what God says or we're going to ignore what God says. Now, can I tell you, that sounds good until you disagree with God. That preaches really well, but I remember when I came to faith in Christ... I came from an atheistic background. I was, a, I was a gay rights activist. There were all sorts of things that I did not believe that the Bible taught. And I came into direct conflict with what the Word of God taught. It was saying that God literally created the world in just a handful of days. But from what everything I was taught was that it was a, a process that happened over billions of years. It was unguided. It just naturally occurred. And so I had to make a decision as to whether or not I was going to believe what God said or believe what I thought. There were other times about what God said about marriage and, and who ought to be with whom. God's divine design for that. And I had to make a decision of whether I was going to go with what I thought and what was popular in culture or whether I was going to go with what the Lord said. That is not an easy place to be. And some of you that have had to make those decisions and have lost friends and family over it because you decided to choose to go with what the Lord said and what would have been convenient or expedient or what you thought made sense to you, it's a hard place to be. But Jesus says we're, we're not given room to take what we want and leave what we don't want. I haven't been to a buffet in a while, but I still think they have them, don't they? I thought COVID was going to kill all the buffets. But, but just like the roaches inside of Golden Corral, nothing can kill that place, right? I'm kidding. There's not roaches inside of it. If you love Golden Corral, I apologize. But don't eat at the one in Powell, Tennessee. I'm just saying. It wasn't good. At a buffet, you can take what you want and you can leave what you don't want. But in God's word, 
all of it comes from the Lord, and all of it has as much authority as God has authority. And so it says here that there's really no room for people to do that. And if you take something that you think is unimportant, guess what? In the kingdom of heaven, you're unimportant. There's no room for that there. You're going to call that elite, a little commandment? Then you will be called little in the kingdom of heaven. But whoso shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. People that not only do what is asked of them, but also teach other people that this is how you can please the Lord. This is how you can walk in his blessing. This is how you can make the most of what God has given you. This is how you can have a great day when you arrive before God in heaven to give an account of what you did with what you were given, believer, to have that great day and teach other people also. Discipleship is so important. That's, that's the term we use today. A disciple is a follower. Discipleship is teaching somebody how to be a follower of Jesus. Not a follower of us, but a follower of Christ. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He has children. Right? We follow the Lord directly for ourselves. And so Jesus says here in this passage that if we want to be called great in the kingdom of heaven, then we're going to help other people follow Jesus Christ as well. It's something that we pass on to others. This is really why Sunday school, the, the Bible studies that we have in our church at 930 every Sunday is so important. Because I don't know if you realize it or not, but that's part of discipleship. Those smaller groups where we meet together and we study God's word and we talk about how to apply it and we ask our questions and we talk about the things that are going on in our hearts. That is, from the youngest to, to the seniors class, that is a huge part of discipleship. It's teaching us to have relationship with one another and how to follow the Lord. And so when we leave Sunday school out, because when I grew up, Sunday school was just for kids in that church. Anybody else grow up in a church where Sunday school was just for kids? I remember being, uh, the first time I went, I was in college, and, and um, it was at this church, and Shannon, who's, who's my wife now, we were just dating at that time, she's like, you should come to Sunday school, and I'm like, what, like coloring pages? Like Moses uh, and, and the Red Sea coloring pages, or Noah and the Ark coloring pages? Like, okay, but I'm like 20. And then I got there and found out that's not what we were doing. We were studying and getting our questions answered and, and we were having a good time and, and being able to apply things. It was, it was huge in my growth as a new believer. So we ought to make much of it too because God makes much of it as well. The word of God is absolutely authoritative. Absolutely authoritative. Look in Matthew 24, would you? In Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, in verse number 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Heaven and earth themselves will fail before the word of God fails. Look in John, if you would, chapter 10, John chapter 10. that latter half of the 35th verse in John chapter 10. It says, and the scripture cannot be broken. The scripture cannot be broken. God celebrates those who follow after him and who teach people to do the same. In verse number 20, back in our passage, in Matthew chapter 5, for I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, 
ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. To the people listening to Jesus, this would have been one of the most discouraging things that they could have heard. Because the vast majority of the people who were listening to Jesus were ordinary people. And the Pharisees were the most clean-living, religious, dedicated people that you could imagine, at least from the outside. They were at synagogue all the time. They kept all of the dietary restrictions. You're not allowed to eat this. You need to eat this. On this day of the week, you're not allowed to do that kind of work. They'd wear certain garments. They would study the scriptures, and they would, they would deliver messages, sermons, and they would pray, and they would fast. And they seemed like the very best people in the world because they had time to devote themselves to that as a way of life. And then you got the guy over here who's just trying to farm his land and take care of his animals and raise his kids, trying to do the best. And he doesn't have the time to devote himself to the scriptures like that guy does. He doesn't have the time to devote himself to prayer and to fasting. He's got a life to live. And Jesus just said, unless your righteousness, meaning that doing the things that God requires and being right in the eyes of God, unless you are more right than these religious people that have spent their, their adult life following after the things of God, unless you end up being better in the eyes of God than them, more right than them, you're never going to make it to heaven. You're not going to be a part of what God is doing here in the kingdom. You're just not going to make it. This would be one of the most demoralizing things if we didn't have the rest of Scripture to help us understand. You see, the Pharisees, as good as they looked, the Pharisees were hypocrites. They weren't what they pretended to be. Look in Matthew 23. In Matthew chapter 23. Jesus made people mad. Did you know that? Jesus made people mad. He was not scared of saying the things that needed to be said. Matthew 23. In verse number 12. Let's start in verse number 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Meaning danger or doom. That's what woe means. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. He says, there's doom, there's judgment coming upon you, Pharisees, because you're keeping people out of the true way to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You're telling them it's one way, but you don't even do the things you say. You say you've got to keep all of these laws and do all of these things, and though they looked good, they weren't even doing it themselves. Jesus called them hypocrites. Verse 14, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. They would take advantage of the defenseless people. The widows were supposed to be the ones most protected in society. The orphans were supposed to be the ones most protected in society. God has a heart for them because in that society, if you didn't have an adult male to take care of you, you were at the whim of society. You were in a bad way. And so God had a tender place in his heart for widows and for the orphans. And here he's saying that they were using religion in order to take advantage of these widows, devouring up all of their belongings and everything that they had. Not only that, they made pretense of long prayer. They prayed long to look good. They prayed long to look good. They wanted everybody to say, wow, look at them. Aren't they godly? Aren't they pious? They loved the benefits that came with being clergy 
They loved the, the benefits of how when there was a feast, they'd be given a high place to sit. And when you'd come into the synagogue, which is where they met during those times when they couldn't meet in the temple, there were seats for the most honored. And, oh, rabbi, come right ahead. Oh, oh brother so-and-so, come right ahead and sit here. And they loved the attention of men. Not because they loved God, not because they believed, but the pretense. And God said there will be greater judgment against them because they did these things. Verse 15, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. He says you go to great lengths to find others and lead them in a way that's never going to make them right with God but makes them even more religiously lost. The danger about false religion is that it looks good. The danger about Christless religion is that it looks good because these people were, were pretty much the best people in society in a lot of ways. They, were the, they, weren't, they weren't causing trouble with the rabble. You weren't going to find them being disobedient and demonstrating and... Uh, riotous living, you're not going to find anything like that with them. And so they thought they were fine when they really weren't. They thought they were fine when they really weren't. They thought because we do all of these things and people say such nice things about us, we're going to be just fine. But in another passage, Jesus says, you're like a sepulcher. You're like a tomb. You're like a grave. You look good because the tombstone has been freshly whitewashed, but on the inside... You're filled with dead men's bones. Filled with dead men's bones. That they were near to God with their lips, but far from him in their heart. And so when he's talking about a righteousness that is better than the Pharisees, he's saying you need something more than dead religion. You need something more than just pretending to be right with God. You need to be thoroughly right with God. You need a righteousness that you can actually achieve and it won't be a righteousness by the law because no man has ever been justified by the works of the law. Meaning that no one has ever been good enough to earn their way into heaven. Only the Lord Jesus Christ himself ever kept the law perfectly. But if you look with me in Romans chapter 3, we are given wonderful news. There is a righteousness that does exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. You don't have time to go become a monk somewhere in a monastery and sit there and pray all day and read the Bible all day and to, to serve people that are in need all day. You and I perhaps don't have that. But in Romans chapter 3, in verse number 21, the Word of God says this, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Here he's writing saying there's a way to be right with God and not having to keep the whole law. It's been revealed to us. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto, upon, unto all and upon all them that believe. You see, there's a way to be right with God, and that's by putting faith and trust in what Jesus Christ did. You don't have to be good enough anymore because the Lord Jesus already was. You don't have to be perfect because the Lord Jesus was already perfect. You don't have to toe the line and dot every I and cross every T and keep every jot and tittle because though our best efforts, we could never do it on our own, but Jesus already has. And so when you and I stand before God, there is a way to be right before him, to be right in his eyes when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because there's this great exchange that happens when we trust Christ. Our sin has been taken from us and placed on the Lord Jesus. 
and he's already paid for it. And his righteousness has been placed on us. There was a permanent folder that they would threaten us with, a permanent record that they threatened us with back in school. And it was the day when there actually was a filing cabinet. Back in the 1900s, they actually had a filing cabinet. And there was a file folder in there, and they had a list of all of your grades in the school office. And they'll tell you, if you did something wrong, that's going on your permanent record. And I thought, man, I, you know, if they put something on my permanent record, I'm never going to make it. I'm in middle school or elementary school, and I thought, if they put something on my permanent record, I'll never go to college. I'll never get a job. No one will ever marry me. I mean, they made it sound like it was the worst thing that could happen. I'm not sure if they even kept I don't even know if they passed it on to the middle school. But I want you to know, in heaven, if God has a filing cabinet, and he goes and rifles through all the manila envelopes in there until he finds the one with your last name on it, and then the one with your first and last name on it, and pulls it out and goes to pull out your transcript to look at your grades for life and how well you pleased God in your words and how well you pleased him in your thoughts, and how well you pleased him in your actions, on your good days and on your bad days, when you look at that record, if you are in Jesus Christ, if you have by faith trusted him as Savior, when he looks at that record, he sees only A pluses, perfect scores, perfect grades all the way through. You say, but I didn't earn perfect scores. Me neither. But the Lord Jesus did. That's what it means when his righteousness is imputed to our account, his a bank account balance overwrites ours. His permanent transcript overwrites ours. This is what the Lord Jesus has done for us in salvation. And so a righteousness is available to us, not just from keeping the law, but from putting our trust in Jesus Christ. True righteousness, even greater than what the Pharisees have. So here are some things for us to apply tonight. Here are three things for us to apply tonight. If you're in the habit of writing things down, you may want to take note of this. The first thing that this passage does is it challenges us to rejoice in righteousness by faith. Jesus Christ fulfilled all the requirements of the law, and no other man did, and no other man, natural man would, meaning that no one in his or her own merit could ever satisfy what was asked of us. Why? Why? Because God wanted us to know that we needed a Savior. It showed us how great a need we have, and that he did send a Savior. And so how can we be made righteous before God? By putting our faith in Christ's work on the cross. When he died for us, and he died as us, and he rose again from the grave, that is the only way that you and I can stand before God in a way where he will say, welcome, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Nothing in my own record will ever get me in there. No longer do you have to be good enough. Jesus Christ already was. Have you been saved? Have you trusted Christ as Savior? Have you been released from the burden of following the law and being good enough and smart enough and successful enough and getting everybody's approval? Have you been released from that yet? Because you can be. In just a moment, we have in our church what we call a time of invitation where we invite people to act on what it is that God's speaking to them about. And this evening, whether you're, you're new to this church or you've been here a while, whether you're here in person or you're joining us online, you can put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ tonight, have eternal life, and have the forgiveness of sins, and have that righteousness that it is by faith. Rejoice in that, Christian. Well, aren't you glad you don't have to make all those sacrifices that you read about in the Old Testament? Because Jesus fulfilled all that. He was the perfect sacrifice. It no longer needs to be done. Secondly, we need to live honestly before all men. 
We need to live honestly before, before all men. The Pharisees pretended to be righteous. They pretended to be better than they were. They pretended like they were almost sinless. And you know, that is very discouraging. That is very discouraging. I remember being discouraged about living the Christian life because, and I'm not, I, I don't want to complain about certain people because I don't even know that they realized they were doing it. But when somebody pretends to be better than they are and they convince you, you start to look at yourself and say, what's wrong with me? They can do it. Why can't I do it? They never struggle with that. Why do I struggle with it? They never have doubt. Why do I have doubt? They never deal with lust. Why do I have this lust? They never deal with greed. Why do I deal? And you start to worry because they put on this face like, I've reached it. I've, I've attained. And you say, boy, I have. And you almost get bitter to the point where you're like, why even bother? Why even bother? You see, we don't do people any favors by pretending that we're better than we are. Usually that's not for them, it's for us. When we live honestly before all men, we're going to follow God to the best of our ability. We're going to do right as much as we can in the power of God. And when we're wrong, we'll admit it, we'll repent of it, and we'll move forward. That's really what the Christian life looks like. Not a bunch of perfect people like a museum where you can walk around and see how great everybody is, but a bunch of people that know what it means to be forgiven and to forgive others, who knows what it means to get back up again and to try again. There's no need to pretend. There's no hypocrisy. I want you to know that it's the kind of church here, by God's grace, where you can actually live that way. And that's what I believe pleases the Lord. We want to try and please the Lord. And that's really the last point. Seek to please the Father in all things. Jesus did please the Father in all things. And even though I might not be able to every day, I sure want to try. And Jesus says, it's, there's not little commandments that you can ignore, so I want to be right in all the areas. Good news is that since we're in Christ and we're declared righteous before God, we don't have to worry about facing judgment for the sins that we've done because God's already forgiven those sins. But you know what I never want to do? I never want to get to the place where I'm like, well, God will just forgive that. I don't have to try anymore. God will just forgive that. I don't have to try and walk in the Spirit anymore. You see, people sometimes will use that as a license to sin. They'll use it and be like, well, God will just forgive it. I remember hearing... Um, when I was in college at Ohio State, before God called me to preach, I remember being in, in church there, and there was, there was a couple that was a part of that young adults group, and I heard them say some things that, that they, weren't, they weren't being pure. I don't know how the conversation came up, but they're like, yeah, we know we shouldn't, but, you know, it happens. They're like, we'll just 1 John 1, 9 it. And I'm like, What? They're like, yeah, we'll just 1 John 1, 9 it. Well, what is that? Well, in the Bible, there's a book called 1 John. And in the first chapter, in the ninth verse, it says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I thought to myself, I don't think that's how that works. But I was so young in my faith, I didn't know for sure. What they were doing is they were, they were sinning against the goodness of God by thinking we can continue on in how we've been doing these things and that there's never going to be any consequences for it. Is that how that works? That has not been how that's worked in my life. Good news is when you're serious and you confess it. See, when you confess your sin, you have to agree with God about it. And you turn from it. 
and you say, I don't want to do that anymore. I was going this way, but now I'm going that way. I was heading towards my desires, now I'm heading towards God's desires. When we confess, when we repent of our sin, it, it's, it's a big decision. And knowing that you're just doing that so that you can feel better, so that you can go do it again later, that's not the same thing. That verse doesn't apply to that. This is for people who are serious that they want to do battle with their sin. And it just kind of shocked me that that mindset was there. And so even though we don't have to toe the line now in order to make it to heaven, we have an amazing God who has paid an amazing price that you and I might be with him for all eternity. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I think about that great savior who left all of the glory of heaven to come down to this broken earth to live among broken people and in that moment when I should have been the one paying for my sin in hell for all eternity, he went to the cross, not by accident, but by choice. He laid his life down as a sacrifice fulfilling all of that prophecy that said how the Messiah should die and why he should die, that he bore our iniquities, that by his stripes, when he was whipped, that you and I are healed. All of these things were fulfilled in him, and he took my sin on him there, and he became sin, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I look at that Savior, and I think to myself, how can I trespass against such love? How can I trespass against such kindness? How can I be so ungrateful as to not, not because I'm worried about going to hell. Friend, if you've trusted Christ as Savior, the Bible says that you are secure in the hand of Jesus. And his hand is secure in the hand of the Father. And so Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, in whom is all power, would have to fail for you to lose your salvation. It's not about you and your behavior. It's about God and, their, and his promise. So I'm not talking about that. We don't have to worry about that, but let us never get to the place where we stop trying to seek to please the Father, growing to be more like Jesus. Not because we have to, but because we love him. You know, my, my wife doesn't have to go downstairs to the safe, pull out the black binder, get our marriage certificate with a copy of our vows, and come up to me and say, listen here! You promised that you would, you would be my husband. And so now, because I've got this, do the dishes. Fold the laundry. Mow the lawn. No, no, she doesn't have to go to the law to make me do it. I gladly do it because I love her. And that ought to be our way of serving the Lord. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes for just a moment? I want to thank you for your good attention. I mentioned that we have a time of invitation in our church where we invite you to act on what it is that God has spoken to you about. And I'm not sure what he's spoken to you about, but I pray that he has. That's what does make a church service a good one. Perhaps you're here tonight and you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You, you know that you're a believer, but you, you really have been putting on a pretense. You've been pretending instead of actually being because you don't want to look bad and you don't perhaps want to do what needs to be done in order to please the Father in a certain area. So you've, you've been pretending. But you know that that can't last and you don't want it to last. 
And you would much rather live in honesty. You'd much rather live with God's approval. You'd much rather have to step forward into his power and do the right thing. Perhaps that's you tonight. I want to encourage you in just a moment when we stand and sing that perhaps right there in your seat or here at the altar that you would bring that area before the Lord in which you know you're, you're putting on like things are better than they really are. There's no room for that in the kingdom of God. We need to be honest. We need to be honest with ourselves. We need to be honest with the Lord. We need to be honest with people around us. Perhaps you're here tonight and you, you aren't really a church person. Maybe you're watching or listening online and someone shared this with you and you're not really a church person and, and you really don't know about Jesus and, and all of this is relatively new to you. But just the thought about having a righteousness by faith in him, that one day you can stand before God and not have your sins called out before you and not have to suffer for your sins in hell. The idea that God went to such great lengths to make a way for you to be saved, it's grabbed your attention. And you can't pretend that it hasn't. It's grabbed your attention. If that's you tonight, with every head bowed and every eye closed, and with no one looking around, I want to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to come to you. I'm not going to call you out. But if God is dealing with you about putting your faith and trust in him, because that's new to you, would you just slip your hand up so I can pray for you? Just between you and me and God. Is, is the Lord dealing with anybody about that tonight? I just want to pray with you. Maybe the Lord has spoken to you about something else. Maybe the, how particular he is with his word and, and you want to spend more time in his word. Maybe you want to begin again. You started off this year trying to read through the Bible and, well, things got busy. I want you to know you can start again today. You put out those Bible reading schedules inside of the prayer journals. I want to encourage you, start again. God's word is important. Let's begin again together. Whatever it is that the Lord has spoken to you about, would you say yes to him tonight? Father, we rejoice in this great salvation that you've offered us. That we couldn't toe the line and so you did it for us. May we rejoice in that. And out of that gratitude, seek to please you in all things. Help us in this time. May we say yes to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you.